Hello all, and welcome to the Inside Look, where we dive inside the human body, its myriad of possible issues, and their respective solutions. I'm your host, Colonel Sheridan, and today we broach the widely unknown topic of lymphedema. Before going into detail on lymphedema, its effects, causes, and more, we should discuss the lymph system, the oft-overlooked secondary circulatory system of the body, vital for immunology, tissue fluid regulation, and lipid transport. As your heart pumps blood around the body, it exerts high pressures on the blood. Due to this, when the blood reaches the capillaries, some of the blood plasma, small biomolecules and proteins are forced out of the bloodstream and into the intracellular spaces. The majority of this fluid is resorbed back into the bloodstream through osmosis. However, some of this fluid is left behind. It sometimes picks up other passengers such as dendritic cells, lipids and T-cells, and is then drained into the lymphatic capillaries, at which point it is considered lymph fluid. This then travels through a system of growing lymphatic collectors, which use a combination of unidirectional lymphatic valves and muscle cells to act as a pump. The valves opening and closing in sync with the contraction of muscle cells in their segment to push the lymph along towards the lymph nodes. Fluid enters the lymph nodes in their afferent collecting lymphatics and leave in an efferent lymphatic. Along the way, T and B cells and antigen-presenting cells use narrow conduit structures to travel to various zones of the lymph node where antigen-presenting cells bind to the lymphocytes to produce antigen-specific cells that then go on to produce a targeted immune response in the body. As these lymphatic vessels converge and grow larger, they are referred to as lymphatic trunks, which drain into the right and left subclavian veins, allowing the fluid to return to the blood flow. Lymphedema occurs when this drainage does not occur as it should, leading to a buildup of fluids, proteins and biomolecules in the interstitial tissues, causing swelling of the affected area. This generally occurs in the legs, arms, groin area or face, most commonly affecting the legs. Symptoms include swelling leading to tightness, heaviness of the affected limb leading to mobility issues, and pain, with many patients as such becoming less active and less body confident. Due to the role of the lymphatic system in immune response, a compromised lymphatic system also makes the affected area extremely vulnerable to infection, meaning any wound, no matter how small, poses a significant health risk. There are two types of lymphedema, primary and secondary, both chronic conditions requiring regular maintenance. Primary lymphedema is a congenital condition affecting 1 in 100,000 people, most often observed in the lower limbs, caused by disruptions to the normal function of the lymphatic system. In some cases, the cause of these abnormalities is not known, but many cases are attributed to hereditary conditions such as Meig's disease or to chromosomal abnormalities. Secondary lymphedema, the most common cause of the condition affecting 1 in 1,000 people, is generally caused by damage or disruptions in the lymphatic system due to surgery, treatment of other conditions, infections, or various types of trauma. Incidence rates of lymphedema in cancer survivors range from averages of 6 to 30.5% for various types of cancer, with ranges of some studies reaching 73%. This is in part due to a procedure of excising lymph nodes to check for cancerous cells and growths as an indicator for whether or not the cancer is spread beyond the known area due to the ability of cancers to use the lymphatic vasculature as a transport mechanism to distant organs for further metastasis. Currently, especially here in Ireland, there is limited awareness of lymphedema among medical staff, and as such, treatment is greatly hampered, consisting mainly of good practices in health upkeep, such as moisturisation and skin care of the affected limb, and a specialised massage technique referred to as manual lymph drainage to promote movement of the lymph fluid stagnating in the limb to an area in which the lymphatic system can effectively drain from. Many patients, especially those with more severe symptoms, are then forced to look abroad for treatment, such as the Foldy Clinic located in Hinterzarten, Germany. 
The European Centre for Lymphology treatment here is far more in-depth, known as complete decongestive therapy, with courses on manual lymph drainage, custom braided compressive stockings available on order for wear during the daytime for constant regulation and pressure on the affected area, and a tailored blend of compression bandages and foam shapers for intense compression at nighttime. Tools such as these, though they can be arduous in their constant use, allow the patient to manage their condition, keeping themselves healthy while minimising swelling. Surgical treatments are also available, though generally only considered in cases where complete decongestive therapy has not succeeded in managing the lymphedema, where the patient is experiencing significant pitting edema, and where the patient has suffered repeated bouts of cellulitis or similar tissue infections in the affected limb. Surgical options include lymphovenous bypass procedure, draining lymphatic vessels in the affected area directly into small venules, and vascularized lymph node transplantation usually used to treat breast cancer-related lymphedema, where a lymph node from another section of the body is transplanted into the affected area in order to recommence flow. These techniques generally work in synergy with one another, especially in more advanced cases. Immediate options in improving the treatment of lymphedema is increasing awareness, disseminating information to those at risk, and educating healthcare professionals to ensure that those suffering with lymphedema have access to the best possible care and treatment available, no matter where they are. Ideally, this would lead to wider adoption of complete decongestive therapy, with patients having access to every resource necessary to properly manage their condition. The surgical techniques discussed also have potential for progress in terms of efficacy and availability. Primarily, however, options should be considered in the treatment and monitoring of cancers and other conditions to minimise the risk of lymphedema and to best preserve patient quality of life after treatment. That concludes today's episode, where we discussed lymphedema, its causes, treatment methods and possible areas for research. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you learned a thing or two and that you enjoyed our inside look. Hi, my name is Fiona Barrow and I'm a third year biomedical engineering student at NUI Galway. Welcome to my podcast where I'm going to speak to you about cervical cancer screening. In Ireland alone, every year about 300 women are diagnosed with cervical cancer. 90 of these women will unfortunately die from it. In women aged 25 to 39, cervical cancer is the second most common cause of death. So the cervix is the lower narrow end of the uterus that forms a canal between the uterus and the vagina. Cervical cancer is cancer of the cells lying in the cervix. Cervical cancer develops slowly. It starts with precancerous cells, or often called abnormal cells, called cervical intrapathelia neoplasia. These cells are not cancerous, but if these cells are not treated, they may develop into cancer. Cancer occurs when the abnormal cells in the cervix form a tumour. These cells may break away and spread to other areas. The human papillomavirus, HPV, accounts for over 90% of cervical cancers. HPV is spread by sexual contact. Most women who are sexually active will have had HPV before. Most women get rid of the virus in a short amount of time and they're unaware they even have it, as there's no symptoms associated with it. The risk with HPV is when our body is not able to get rid of it. These women are at a higher risk of developing cervical cancer. Cervical cancer can often be prevented by having regular screenings. A cervical screening test used to be called a smear test. This was before Ireland changed to HPV cervical screening. This screening looks to see if you have one of the high risk HPV that causes cervical cancer. If HPV is found, the sample will be checked for precancerous cells or abnormal cells. This is known as a cytology. If the patient is positive for HPV but the cytology is normal, they will be invited back for another screening in a year's time. If a patient has abnormal cells, they will have a colposcopy. During a colposcopy, more samples are taken from the cervix. 
If these samples come back showing changes, the person will have to undergo treatment. Treatment depends on how abnormal these cells are. It is estimated that cervical cancer screening prevents 3 out of 4 cervical cancer cases, which is a massive difference. In Ireland, cervical screening is carried out in women between the ages of 25 to 65. After the age of 60, the pap smear becomes less effective due to the change in position of the transformation zone in the cervix. Cervical cancer is less common over the age of 65, but unfortunately women over 65 can still get cervical cancer, and older women have the highest mortality from cervical cancer. Over 30% of deaths from cervical cancer occur in women over the age of 65. A more effective way to screen women over the age of 60 for cervical cancer could have a huge benefit in the fight against cervical cancer. A new exciting area of research in cervical cancer screening is the use of urine tests to detect HPV. A new research by University of Manchester scientists found that urine testing was just as good as the cervical screening test at picking up high-risk human papillomavirus. In this study, cervical samples along with urine samples from a group of 104 women were taken. Preservative fixed urine show good concordance with cervical samples for the detection of HPV. The sensitivity for detecting abnormal cells was 83% in the urine samples, compared with 89% for the cervical samples. These results provide exciting proof of principle that urine HPV testing can pick up precancerous cells. But the study highlighted that larger studies would need to be carried out to determine its clinical utility. However, it seems as though this could be a great alternative to cervical cancer screening not only for older women, but also for women who cannot access cervical screening. In the developing world, cervical cancer is up to 15 times more prevalent and is the leading cause of death in women. Unfortunately, in these countries, cervical screening is nearly non-existent. A non-invasive cervical screening option could also appeal to women who don't avail the cervical screening test because they find it uncomfortable or embarrassing. It is estimated that over 20% of women in the UK are not up to date with their cervical screening tests. A urine test might appeal more to these women and encourage them to go out and get tested. Before I finish up this podcast, I think it's also important to note the huge benefit the HPV vaccine has had on preventing cervical cancers. Since 2010, in Ireland, the HPV vaccine has been offered to girls starting secondary school, so about the ages of 12 and 13. The HPV vaccine is given in two doses. The benefit of this vaccine can already be seen. Among young women, infections with HPV types that cause most cervical cancers and genital warts has dropped by a massive 71%. Thanks to science, the fight against cervical cancer has come a long way since the first pap test in the 1940s. It will be exciting to see what the future holds. We can only hope there comes a day when no women will have to fear dying of cervical cancer. Thanks for listening, and if you would like further information, I'd recommend looking at cervicalcheck.ie. Hi, my name is Kenneth and my medical area of interest is melanoma with dermatoscopy. Melanoma is a type of skin cancer that appears as a colored mark or growth on the skin. It is primarily caused by ultraviolet light, altering the DNA in melanocytes, which can lead to cancerous growth. It is usually identified by changes in existing moles or the appearance of existing new lumps. For example, a patient would have a high chance of having melanoma if they had mole growing asymmetrically with a regular shape of corners or edges, different color patches on the mole and increasing in size over time with initial mole size greater than half a centimeter. These early signs help to recognize melanoma. Other signs include bleeding and itching of mole. 
Dermatoscopy is the examination of skin lesions with usually a dermoscope. It's a device that allows for the inspection of skin lesions unobstructed by the reflection on the skin surface. Basically, its function is to accurately see deeper than the first layer of the skin. Previously discussed signs in the form of patterns are found and recognized on and in the skin. Treatment is then applied based on the results found. The good thing is that melanoma is entirely treatable. But the bad news is that it spreads quickly, therefore it is essential to find melanoma at its early stages and treat it immediately. Self-diagnosing has become more and more popular alongside the internet and self-diagnosing tools. People want to diagnose themselves for multiple reasons, including saving time, money, privacy and so on. I would like to work on increasing the overall accuracy of self-diagnosing patients so melanoma would be found quicker, as speed is vital in diagnosing melanoma. As a biomedical engineer, I would like to be a part of creating a system where melanoma is diagnosed successfully, quickly and consistently. This process would include combining existing technologies. Firstly, I would start by increasing the sensitivity and accuracy of consumer devices whilst reducing costs. There are many such devices on the market, however, they have their disadvantages. I would supplement their poor quality with image enhancing software such as Google Lens, where poor images are enhanced to be equal quality to the top cameras. Secondly. I would like to create an open source artificial intelligence image recognition program. Image recognition software would identify patterns forming in the skin of patients from uploaded images and correctly diagnose immediately with little to no error. And lastly, I would like to help create a medical blockchain, an expanding database whereby users can anonymously contribute pictures of melanoma and other skin conditions. These data sets would be saved and not forgotten. This will make the diagnosing software more accurate as time goes on. Diagnostic programs would also evolve as they are paired against each other and constantly being improved by the community. Therefore, as time goes on, the overall accuracy of the diagnostic system would grow. Thus, the overall health of humanity would improve. A cool idea to implement later would be to have people contribute a small fee every time they upload an image which would be pooled together in the blockchain. The patient will then get money if he needs treatment or if the diagnosis was wrong. This would incentivize people to invest in the technology as it would be cheaper than insurance. And also, the diagnosis tool would be incentivized to become better. Another idea would be to group that data together based on certain categorical or quantifiable characteristics such as sex, race or age. This could be sold to medical research agencies which would even add more money to the blockchain and produce more value to the world. There are numerous possibilities. I hope you enjoy my podcast and thank you for your time.